we do have quite a bit to do today, and I just want to give a caveat that this will feel a little bit more like a Bible study probably than a sermon because the chunk of what Paul is doing here and the way he argues, it's really difficult for us to come back to it six days separated from each part of the argument. So my hope is that in trying to string together most of the main points of Romans 9, we'll see that what happens in Romans 9, 10, and 11, far from being an odd excursus about the eternal destiny of the Jewish people, is in line with Paul's understanding of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and the answer to God's covenant promises and therefore the interaction with those who have been blessed with and given the responsibility for being those who knew and understood and were taught the covenant truths of God. So just a reminder of where we are in the outline of the book. Then I will pray and then we'll read the text as we go through it, given the amount that we are going to be looking at this morning. The first four chapters was Paul's unveiling of God's righteousness and his right to act in line with or because of human sin, both that of the Gentile world, but also of God's people in their wrestling with and falling under the temptation of sin. We just finished the second group, which is from chapters 5 through 8, where the realities of the new covenant and the promises of new creation because of that new covenant and because of the successful work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, that Paul has been exuberant about the possibilities of what happens because of new covenant and new creation. In chapters 9 through 12, we're going to look at God's covenant faithfulness and Israel's unbelief. The challenge of being God's people and God's faithfulness in and through it. And then uh, eventually we'll get to chapters 12 through 16 where we'll see the faithfulness and fellowship of God's covenant in the wider world. Let's take a moment first to pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we read your word this morning, as we seek to understand some of the more challenging and in our weaker moments, offensive words of Paul describing what it is to have a living and breathing and sovereign God. We ask that your spirit would temper the words, that it would give us hearts that can be shaped and are being shaped by the fullness of who you are. And in all these things, Lord, may you comfort and encourage us even as we wrestle with the realities and brokenness of sin and its impact even on your people. We pray these things and we ask, Lord, that whatever is said might be useful for the building up of your people. And whatever is untrue and unhelpful, may those words be quickly forgotten. Amen. Uh, So it's not uncommon, uh, given some of my proclivities, for folks to ask me why I'm so uh, hard on the American Protestant Church or why I have a tendency to blame uh, the American Protestant Church for this problem or that problem within the world. And of course, there's always a nuanced answer to that. But for me, starting with the people who have the truth, who could and should and do know better, because 
We have the eternal truths of God. We have an ethic that doesn't change. We have a way of viewing culture that is less impacted by the to's and fro's of various ideas, all derivative or perverting of God's truth, that invade cultures at any given time. And the ability to have eternal truth, to have the revealed Word of God and the Holy Spirit, means that to a great degree, we do have the opportunity to be positive forces in and through a culture. And to the degree that we are able to both see our history and our theology together, we have the opportunity to take responsibility. Because pagan people doing pagan things isn't terribly shocking. Secular people acting like secular people shouldn't be terribly shocking. They're acting in line with who they are. The critique of God and His people from Genesis all the way through Revelation is you're not acting in line with who you are. And what we see in Paul as he starts out in Romans 9 is the anguish of both wanting his people, his flesh and blood, to follow God in a way that is more free, that is more empowering in the sense of empowering for the, the possibilities of kingdom, the possibilities of living at peace with God and following Him in the joys of what it means to be His people and in the covenant with Him and to trust the richness of it. To long for it and want for it. The prophets didn't dislike Israel. They loved her. Wanted her desperately to live free. Part of Jonah's great complaint was that he wanted for Israel what seemed to come so easily to Nineveh. He wanted for his own people the confession and the repentance that seemed to come in one of the worst sermons ever preached. You're all going to die. And I'm somewhat happy about it. Unless you confess. That sermon worked. And he'd spent his entire life desperately trying to encourage the northern and southern kingdoms about the truth and the love of covenant God to little or no effect. Paul is a Jew. His mother and father were Jewish. The people that he went to synagogue with, not surprisingly, when he was growing up in Tarsus, were Jewish. He knows the beauty and the love of what it is to know the Torah by heart. The number of allusions to Isaiah and Ezekiel, not only the overt quotes to Hosea and Malachi that are made, but Isaiah is all through this chapter. He knows it. It's in the very fiber of his being. And so as he begins to answer the question, why don't more Jewish people believe in Jesus as their Messiah? It is with the pains of one who loves desperately the people that are his flesh and blood and wants nothing more for them than the inherent and rich freedom that comes from following the God of all creation. 
We see this, and I'll read verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow of unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh." That doesn't mean that his kinsmen thought they had any problems. Most of them would have disagreed with Paul that they had any. They were faithful. They were going to the temple. And they weren't exactly sure why Jesus thought it was such a big deal to cleanse the courtyard of the Gentiles. Why are you doing this? We're just going to church and somebody has to sell and buy these things for the sacrificial system. And yet Paul seems to be quite concerned about his kinsmen. They are Israelites and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the the patriarchs and their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The richness and the history. I was talking to somebody earlier this week about the difference uh, about the uh, wonderful brothers and sisters we have in the Greek Orthodox Church and the Protestant Church. And I would just said that I would much rather live in a nation that had impacted by Protestantism than Russian Orthodoxy. It's Practical outworkings just don't seem to have fomented some of the things that you and I take for granted in liberty and in understanding the individual and the idea that we can press against the fall, this side of glory, which are great truths. Whatever critiques I may have, whatever critiques Paul has of his Jewish brothers and sisters, he recognizes that they have been and are great recipients of blessing, and they have been a blessing. That it's not a zero-sum game. And in fact, the Christ Himself shares their heritage. Paul is in pain. Because he knows the blessings that Israel has in verses 4 and 5 and wishes they would enjoy them all the more. In verses 6 through uh, 13, we see the faithfulness and justice of God in his ongoing selection. And so what we have in this passage that we're about to read is a recitation in classic Jewish form of the history of Israel. A synoptic way of saying, here's how we got here, and here's my critique. And you're supposed to fill in all of the details of hundreds of years of patriarchs, the judges, the kings, the exiles, and the returns. Think of it as a recitation of Israel's history as you listen as I read. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this next time, this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the, un- the, uh, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Powerful words, challenging words. What's largely behind them? Well, first of all, the idea of God acting is shown to be normal, not abnormal. That God electing and choosing and utilizing people for His purposes is a regular activity. This speaks strongly against any Greek or Roman idea in the Stoics or in the the rising Epicurean notions that the gods were really, really far off and probably didn't even exist. And it's certainly going to create a counterbalance to the Greek and Roman ideas of the gods sort of interacting in random ways because of their own uh, boredom and or uh, hobbies. That this is God acting in line with his covenant on a regular basis, engaged in the world. And in our modern times, this pushes against any deistic notions of a clockwork God who set this thing in motion and then deems not to interfere. He knows that if he didn't regularly engage, things would not move forward. And God is not occasionally active in and through his world. He is not occasionally active in the supernatural in moving the covenant forward. He is regularly present and engaged in selecting. And that this is not a new idea. This is how the whole thing got started. God sovereignly acting in and through his creation. Now, there was a tendency in the Jewish uh, thought of the day to suggest that perhaps that the Jewish folks were a little morally superior because Abraham was a person of great character. The scriptures themselves said that he was a man of great faith. And Paul here points to the addition of talking about Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau, to reinforce the fact that God's selection is not based on even the perceived moral superiority. And let's face it, uh, whatever ways in which I can't imagine having the faith of Abraham, I also know that being either Lot or Abraham's daughters or wife was not a great position to be in. There are a few moral failings. There are some ways in which we would want some improvement But without having to denigrate Abraham, Paul just reinforces that Jacob and Esau were chosen for different roles before they even came out of the womb. Just in case his Jewish brothers and sisters were still inclined to say, well, there's something better about us. We are God's people because we we came from this great guy, Abraham. 
who was a person of faith and a spiritual warrior unparalleled in human history. Apparently, Paul does not want to reinforce that idea. What he wants to reinforce is that God uses people like the quote on your worship folder regardless of their moral failings. Because if the only people he used were people who were morally superior to accomplish his purposes, aside from Jesus, nothing would get done. And there is a fundamentally leveling way of pursuing, of understanding that. Using people who are a part of the problem to bring the solution is the way in which God sovereignly interacts. The people are not better. Malachi 1, 1 and 2, which is a part of this, this section in this quote, God chooses to work even in the very firm language of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That is a crescendo statement. It's a quote from Malachi 1, 1 through 2. You need to read the rest of the book of Malachi and again immerse yourself in the argument of the prophet. It doesn't take away all of the sting of God having chosen one and rejected another. Chapter 9, verses 14 through 24, Paul continues to reinforce what he is teaching about the people of God and their responsibility and their blessing. So God has been actively choosing throughout Israel's history, building a nation and a people. And we've gotten through, if you will, to the end of the patriarchs. And we start in verse 14. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, now we're moving on to the exile, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says of Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed on the earth. So then he had mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens those he wills. Now again, we continue to struggle with some of these words. But what we see is that God is moving in and through the world to extend His mercy. And that for us to say mercy only is merciful if everybody gets it is to assume a position in the divine that quite frankly isn't ours to assume. Job came into that realization at the end of his book when he asked and, and wrestled with God. Perfectly fine to wrestle with God, but at some point God will give you an answer that is bigger and above your pay grade because you don't know all ends. Because we have limited brain capacity and limited scope of knowledge. Because the extent of His mercy is and still is His choice. Micah 6.8 says that we are called to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. God is a God of justice. Thankfully, He is also a God of mercy. 
Because what we learned in Romans 1 is that the last thing we want to do is press God on His justice side. That will go poorly. The exertion of His mercy in and through a people struggling and at times failing to follow that God does not eliminate the reality of God's mercy. It just simply means that God's mercy isn't under our control and direction. That He maintains sovereignty even over His mercy. There are all kinds of wonderful and fun things that I would love to go into about the use of the word Pharaoh as opposed to anybody's names in both the Exodus narrative and uh, in Paul's use of it here. But what we know is that God is working in and through the world and He regularly draws out evil, shows it to be perverse, and then defeats it. And so at the very least in Pharaoh, we find a concentration of all that opposes God being drawn into its full intensity and its absurdity and then made a spectacle of. In no small way, Pharaoh shows back up in the Gospels as the Romans and the Jewish leaders conspire together to do an absurd thing and seem to show great power and yet are made a spectacle of because God's glory was going to be shown over the powers and principalities of the world. Moving on through 19, you will say to me, well then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Ah, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump of vessel an honorable use and others for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, his endure, uh, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. We'll stop there for a moment. This is taken almost straight from Isaiah 29, verses 16 and following. The imagery of Isaiah 45, verses 9 and following. And certainly an illusion, because the same theme is present in Isaiah 64. This, I, this reality of being shaped by God. That He is the potter and we are the clay. Some of the commentators made the important point that this is all done still in the conversation or the description of a potter first forming. Nothing's been fired. Nothing's been hardened. Nothing is done. So the question of God's mercy, even with Israel, as he describes through Isaiah, his desire to shape them into a vessel that is in line with who he is and who they were called to be, is very much in play. This isn't a necessarily 
Certainly not in Isaiah and the way Paul's quoting it and some of the things that Paul will say about Israel returning to God later in chapter 10 and 11 is this acknowledgement that the potter has not fired these pieces. That he is still shaping clay that just for whatever reason seems really unwilling to go into the shapes that the potter determines. And that it is that faithfulness of the potter to shape his loved ones, to shape humanity into the vessels that it was always meant to be, and the fact that he does have the power as the potter to shape them in different ways. Isn't part of the problem we have with God, and the reason we often get sideways and rebel is that He shapes us in one direction, and as clay, we say no. All of the passages in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Hosea that talk about the impact of God shaping His people is in response to God's people saying, absolutely not, you will not shape me that way. This doesn't eliminate God's sovereignty. It does, however, reinforce the idea that those things that are instruments of wrath are wrath because they reject the way in which they are formed. That they are not keen on the potter's craftsmanship. Jeremiah 18, 1-6 talks about the reworking of that clay and the reforming of it into something that is pleasing. Whatever is being said here in Romans 9, it is not a description of God's being finished with any of His work. And part of the challenge of being the clay is that because the potter hasn't told us about all of the other pots or about how our purpose fits in or any numerous ways in which we can push this analogy, he's simply telling us as C.S. Lewis does so wonderfully in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I only tell you your story. I'm forming you into the way that I'm forming you. And he is sovereign in doing so. 24 through 29, and then that will bring, we're not going to finish all of, of 9 because we'll, 30 fits better with parts of 10. So let's keep going. All right, so even us, whom he called, not from the, uh, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call to be my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be uh, called my, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel through the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, who, uh, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Again, so much to talk about. But the passage of Hosea and uh, Isaiah are both calling God's people to reflect on the reality that not all Israel is Israel. And that nothing has changed. And so as Paul makes this argument in Romans, answering the question, why have perhaps so few Jewish people recognized Jesus as the answer to all of their covenant hopes and dreams, the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people to bring the Jewish promises of the covenant into the world and to be a blessing to all the nations. In the midst of that, They are saying it has always been true that there are those who reject the goodness of God even from inside the covenant of God. That the prophets wrestled with and prayed for and pressed Israel. Why do you tell people this? It's not so a few people can say, thank goodness I'm the ones whom elect, or so you can throw up your hands and say, well, there's nothing that I can do about it. But the reason we get a picture of the eternal, a picture of the divine throne room, a picture into the fact that there is a sovereign God making sovereign decisions is to be humble and to say, but by the grace of God go I. So how is it since it's not a moral selection because Jacob and Esau eliminated the the idea that it's a moral selection. If all of these things eliminate my ability to determine it, how then do I respond? Through prayer and repentance. Through throwing ourselves on the grace of God, not doubling down on our independence, not doubling down on our morality, not doubling down on the fact that we have the right theology, or that a few things could go well, or at least we're not as bad as the Romans or the Greeks or the secular humanists or the communists or fill in the blank or the capitalists. Whatever group you aren't terribly fond of, but you think God likes you more because at least you're not one of them. That's the challenge of Israel in a false understanding of them being elected. And even in that election, the fact that there are as many as the sands, but there's only going to be a remnant, is a sign that there was not confession and repentance and humility and a willingness to be formed by the potter's hand but a desire and attempt to dictate to the potter what we would be made into and why we should be a more ornate piece of pottery than one of those knuckleheads over there. It's God who determines who is a pot destined for wrath. And most of the time, his categories are far different than yours and mine at least from a human perspective. And the illustration is this. Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Why? Most of us, if we go back to Genesis, are going to say they had a really bad welcoming committee. 
They did not treat guests at Sodom and Gorham with a lot of respect. But that's not what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 16.49 tells us that they were destroyed because they lived in a city of abundance and people went hungry. They did not care for the poor and the widow. And EC, why are you... Because that's what the Bible says. But not only that, because it makes sense. If we are not engaged in kingdom activity, don't we become rather perverse? If the only thing I think I'm worrying about is my own needs and my own pleasures and my own desires, isn't it true that in humanity those desires get more and more abusive of others and more and more perverse? And that the more I think about the other, the more I think about things the way God does, because he clearly thinks about the other, the more that I recognize and embrace the kingdom ethics, the more I am a blessing to the nations, the less I find time for personal perversions. Sodom and Gomorrah's activities in Genesis is the logical outworking of being self-absorbed in one's own comfort and peace at the expense of the other. When I stop loving God, I stop loving my neighbor. When I stop loving my neighbor, I don't know how to love God, and therefore the only thing I love is me, and that gets twisted fast. Paul knew Ezekiel. He was not making an allusion simply to what happened in Genesis, but the origin of it told to us in Ezekiel, who's telling it to God's people who got really, really comfortable and really, really entrenched in the notion that God wanted them to be safe and comfortable and well provided for. And none of those things are guaranteed when you're caring for the other. And the more we focus on the same things that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom focused on, which was their security and their finances and their peace, the more likely the cultures in which we live become more and more preoccupied with more and more bizarre ways of trying to give identity and significance to the self. It is the privilege of knowing the Ten Commandments, which are an exposition of the character of God, a faithful God, a loving God, a generous God, a God of respect, a God of grace and mercy. The more we extend those to those who don't have respect and generosity and love and honor, not because they're worthy. None of us are worthy outside of the election of God. And so when we elect to treat others the way God treats us, when He elects to show us mercy and we elect to show those next to us mercy, the more we begin to incorporate into our lives those things which made it possible for the remnant to hear the good news of God. The more we reject the things that made it harder and harder for Israel to hear the good news of the Messiah. Romans 9, 
hits closer to home than we may like. Every time and in every generation, the people of God are tempted in the same way that Israel was. To see ourselves trying to endure, trying to be safe, trying to just carve out a little bit of peace and quiet for the few tragic, painful, confused, and tiring years of our life until someday we get to go rest with God. Israel was tempted that way. Paul is reciting that God elected them not because they got the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God was going to come through them. And what he prays and what he weeps for and what his anguish is, is that those who knew these great truths would delight in them. Our prayer for the church should be that, again, of, of constant, not necessarily reformation, but always repentance to keep turning back to the way of God and to keep putting ourselves in the hands of a potter who knows our form, who knows what's good for us. And even if we don't understand it, to trust that his election is wise and that he tells us what he's doing because he gives us the chance by his spirit to follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful so much Lord, but what we know is when you tell us hard things, it's because when we acknowledge we can't fix those hard things, when we can't find a way around those hard things, that all we can do is put ourselves in your good care and hands. That's the point. May we rest in you. May you be our strength and our potter. And in so doing, Lord, may we find joy and peace, and a God who desires to be known and to be our shepherd and our friend. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.